Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast, Teaching Writing in College, where the driving question is, how can instructors in higher education leverage theory, science, pedagogy, and craft most effectively to help their learners with writing? Start my slideshow here. Thanks so much for uh, joining me and uh, on YouTube or Apple or Google Podcasts. And uh, just to get started, uh, this is uh, a second of two episodes that I wanted to do on AI, but then I've seen things in the news within the past few weeks that makes me want to do a few more episodes, so I'll try to keep doing those a little bit over time. Um, But uh, one thing I wanted to focus on here, um, maybe even just to get us started, things in the news that uh, are kind of prompting me to do this right now. Um, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, I saw just a few days ago a, an essay written by uh, Maya Bodnick. Uh, she's uh, just finished her freshman year at Harvard, and uh, she wrote this very nice piece on Chat GPT or GPT-4, titled "GPT-4 Can Already Pass Freshman Year at Harvard. Professors Need to Adapt their, uh, to Their Students' New Reality Fast." And it's really kind of intriguing because uh, she uh, talks about how she uh, used uh, GPT-4 to respond to some prompts from classes that she took as a freshman, and then she had the professors and TAs from those classes grade them, and the grades came out A, A, A minus, B, B minus, and pass. All very good grades, um, especially you know somewhere like Harvard, but. Uh, uh, so I'm. it's just in the news a lot. I'd like to keep responding to it. There are a few things I'd like to respond to uh, from uh, Maya's article there in the Chronicle, which, uh, once again, very uh, well done, and uh, it's thought-provoking. So I'd like to get into that at some point in the near future as well. And my computer's a little bit slow here, but here we go. Okay. So um, our central qu- uh, lesson from last time in the uh, episode 10 was uh, to focus our learners' minds on what we want them to learn. I think that's really um, an important thing to consider there. Um, and uh, you might remember I used an example of writing a summary and how you know you can focus on using ChatGPT to do it, or you can have the student write it themselves and focus on the content of whatever it is they're summarizing. It just kind of depends on what you want them to learn and how well you want them to learn it. But uh, just the central uh, principle there, I mean, just memorize, or uh, summarizing something just one time really isn't going to help somebody learn it. But the central uh, idea there is that uh, an instructor needs to continually get the learner's mind to focus on whatever it is that they want them to learn. I remember a quote from Daniel T. Willingham um, in his book, Why Don't Students Like School? Uh, something to that effect that you're one of the, if I remember right, it's a key uh, idea in the book that he highlights and and everything. It's um, that uh, the brain is going to learn what you have a focus on. So that's for sure what we want. And so um, if we're thinking about AI and what are we teaching, what do we want to teach? Um, in the face of AI or in spite of AI or in conjunction with AI, um, there's another central lesson here, uh, which is to focus our own teaching on what we want students to learn. So we have to focus our teaching as well on the things that we want students to learn. And so it goes both ways. You know, anything that I would like my students to do, you know, in terms of, you know, sort of their habits of mind and the way that they approach 
their writing or their learning in my class, I have to do the same kinds of things as a teacher. I have to reflect on my teaching. I have to focus my own you know, mind on what it is I'm trying to teach them. I have to keep track of teaching goals that I have, progress that I would like to see happen in the classroom. I have to make sure that everything I do is geared toward that. So one question I do have, though, is it really a competition or a fight um, when it comes to AI? Uh, in the, uh, you know, there's a lot of discourse about uh, what is happening. You know, are students going to learn what we're teaching them? Um, are they doing their own work? Um, and we really feel like we have to compete with uh, artificial intelligence. But uh, we have to step back and ask ourselves, what do we want for our students? If we want them to learn writing skills they can use elsewhere, we have to think about some things. We have to think about what writing is and what do we want students to know about it and how do we teach it and how do we assess it. Um, that first question there, of course, leads to the other two. But, you know, we have to really decide what is writing. And one thing that it is, is a body of knowledge. Um, I may have said this before on the podcast, but just like uh, medicine or uh, sociology or uh, business or accounting or history or anything else that I can think of, literature, whatever it is, all of those disciplines have content. And you don't know the discipline unless you know that content. And the same thing is true in writing. Writing is not just something that you do. It's something that you can also know things about. And so we want to make sure that our students know things about writing instead of just you know trying to write in the style that we want them to write in or just to focus on grammar or uh, surface level kinds of concerns. They have to know something about writing, really important. That comes also, I don't think I put it on this slide, but I go back to it all the time. It's uh, uh, Doug Downs and Elizabeth Wardle. Um, they have an article right now. It's not coming to me, but that's the central uh, tenant. Um, we can't actually teach students to write we have to teach them about writing. And I may have brought that up on the podcast before too. My my brain always goes back to that when I'm thinking about what I'm doing in the classroom or uh, you know, when I'm learning new things about teaching. Oh, here are the questions that I asked before. Uh, you know, just we seem to ask ourselves all the time. They just underlie the discourse about artificial intelligence and teaching writing right now. Are students really doing their own work? And we've, of course, have had that uh, question in our minds for a long time, not just with ChatGPT, but uh, uh, for decades, of course, you know, there's been that issue of academic honesty or dishonesty. And then are students learning also, you know, if they're not doing their own work, they're not learning, or if they're just using ChatGPT, they're not learning. Uh, but these questions really are kind of about a, often a surface assessment of one-time student artifacts. Usually it's, they're turning in essays and the, those essays are worth a lot of points and then they get grades for those. And if they got good grades, we feel like they learned. If they didn't get good grades, we feel like they didn't. But the truth is, if they've only done something really one time in the writing of that essay, um, it's the same as cramming for an exam. You know, the, the learning isn't going to stick. And so we have to uh, think about, you know, those questions. Those are really important questions, especially that second one, are they learning? Um, first one, of course, uh, what are they doing? And uh, when they do the right things, it does lead to learning. So we want to keep that in mind. So uh, a couple of things that I've just thought of, too, about uh, a limited view of writing. You know, how the writing sounds. Um, artificial intelligence can produce writing that simply passes the Turing test. You know, it's so easy 
uh, for artificial intelligence now, GPT-4, to write prose that sounds like it came from a person and we can't just tell that it didn't. Um, and uh, what the content is. Can we detect factual errors? Are they using legitimate sources? Um, you know, those are the kinds of questions that come up when we start to think about students using ChatGPT. But there is a broader view about what we should teach. Um, oh, and here's the Downs and Wardle quote. I've got it over there on the uh, right-hand side of the screen. Um, I, I created this uh, slideshow several weeks ago, and I'm just now getting back to it. But um, we want to teach students about writing instead of trying to teach them to write. And so that's in a, uh, for you listening, um, it's in a 2007 article in College Composition and Communication, and it's called Teaching About Writing, Writing Misconceptions, Re-Envisioning the First-Year Composition as Introduction to Writing Studies. Uh, that's the uh, title. And uh, it's in uh, uh, Volume 58, Issue 4 in 2007, pages 552 to 584. Really important, very much worth the read. But a couple of the points they make in there is that are that uh, teaching students to write isn't really feasible or maybe even possible because writing changes so much between contexts. So just for example, my own example here, I think good business writing looks much much different from good classroom writing, and and uh, it's just highly contextual, very hard to get around that. Another thing is that social contexts are where writing comes from. Subject matter knowledge, social norms about expression or common beliefs or distribution of writing and other matters are what makes writing different in different contexts. And so we really can't just teach students to write because writing changes no matter where you go. But what we can do is teach students about writing, and then they have the ability to adapt. And so it's kind of that framework that really enables instructors to think about writing in terms of transfer. You have to have uh, some knowledge about writing first, uh, just like I mentioned a few minutes ago. Just like any other discipline, there's a body of knowledge out there that people can know that then enable them to do things. So that's really important. Um, one mark of a discipline is a specialized vocabulary. Uh, here's a piece of specialized vocabulary that I uh, came across a while ago in my uh, wanderings in social media and the term is tuple and it has something to do with computer science and I don't know exactly what it is but the fact that I don't know what it is tells me that I need to know I need it's something that would help me get more access to programming and computer science it's a, a programming term that I'm just not familiar with and uh, I could go look it up and I could use it in any coding practice that I do and maybe it would help me know more but uh, I'm definitely an outsider when it comes to that discipline because I don't know what a tuple is. So here are some terms that I think I've shown these before too, some things that I like to use uh, in writing classes quite a bit. Um, one of the top ones, of course, uh, summaries can be one. You know, I, we talked about summaries in the previous episode. Narratives are really good writing tools. You kind of have to know what narratives are and how they work. A little bit and if you have kind of a framework for narratives then uh, you can use them and they can get used in a lot of places they can get used in police reports or in grant proposals or in uh, 30 second ads on YouTube I mean there are lots of things that you can do with narratives and they get adapted to to meet those different genres those different contexts as well uh, so they can be useful for students but of course one of the really main ones is genre and uh, once again, I think I'd like to do an episode on that here at some point. 
but uh, really kind of a key piece of information that helps people understand how writing works. I like to use rocks, recurring occasion content structure and style uh, with my students and get them familiar with that so that, uh, you know, just it helps enable them. And then a lot of the other things that I have here, like uh, argument in here, I've got a bunch of uh, items from the stasis theory there because uh, so many genres, even if there's not an explicit argument, uh, there are arguments going on and some of them, uh, you know, they're uh, in, in the exchange between the writer and the reader. Um, there are lots of things happening that uh, stasis theory can help uh explain or it can be used to interpret. So I like to use it quite a bit. Um, evidence, uh, another one uh, that is dependent on audience. I like to use star criteria from Richard Fulkerson uh, for that. But structure, lots of different uh, ways to do structure, style, uh, park, proximity, alignment, repetition, and contrast. Um, I got that one from Mike Markell's uh, textbook. And uh, I can't, right now I can't remember the other author. I apologize if the other author is reading. It's been a little while, or listening, it's been a little while since I've used the book, and I can, I just can't remember. I know, and it's a well-known name too, so I apologize for that, but uh, uh, proximity, alignment, repetition, and contrast is really, really great for visual structure and also, you know, rhetorical choices. Uh, the penny principle, I'll bring that on and explain that sometime. Technical writing, just, you know, definitions sometimes of, uh, of you know, what kind of writing you're looking at can be helpful. I also like to talk to students about conditions of learning, um, you know, what it takes to learn. They have to learn conceptual knowledge and practice and metacognitive reflection, and they have to have an enabling disposition. All of those come from the Elon statement. And I talk to students about that explicitly, and we do metacognitive activities related to those. Um, but uh, all of those things, you know, they need to be, you know, it, here's just a small body of knowledge about writing that can really help students uh, go pretty far in terms of transfer and things like that as long as they uh, practice them a lot and as long as I as a teacher just reflecting on my own practice I'm always practicing them with students I'd like to show some ways that I do that over time too in the podcast um, just an example here I hope I can do this justice um, that uh, I think is kind of relevant to you know just to go just to kind of help illustrate how um, learning works um, from you know sort of the novice all the way up to expertise here. Uh, I, I like to look at the field of medicine and because it's so, you know, it's it's really kind of easy to see that, you know, they they have to make knowledge very explicit, you know, through the vocabulary that they use and all of that. And they, you know, spend years and years studying and then, you know, they get really good at what they do. And the same kind of process would happen in any area or any body of knowledge uh, when you're gaining expertise. And there's just a really great story about uh, a neurosurgeon named Mike Ebersold from uh, the book Make It Stick. You might be familiar with that book. It's also a, a fantastic one and very much worth reading. Um, but uh, he, there's this story in there where he does some spontaneous problem solving based on some vast factual knowledge that he has, of course, from his medical background and then his background in neurosurgery, more specialized, and then all of his experience there and also his own reflection, which I think is really important. So I'm going to try really hard to just kind of summarize this story briefly because it takes up some pages in Make It Stick, and you know it's worth uh, getting the book and reading it. It's, uh, it's in Chapter 2, I think. But um, anyway, what happens is, um, he gets to the emergency room one day, and there's a patient there who 
had been out uh, in a field somewhere hunting and uh, had been struck by somebody else's stray slug from a 12-gauge shotgun. He'd been struck in the back of the head, and it was embedded in the back of his head. Uh, And um, uh, he would have died, but the slug and some bone fragments plugged a small uh, vein back there. I think it's, it's a, I forget the name of it, but it's a drainage vein. It's about the, the size of a person's uh, small finger uh, uh, in diameter. And it, uh, you know, helps uh, blood exit the skull, I think, you know, on its way back uh, down to the heart. But, um, uh, he, and he had been unconscious for a while. Uh, some other hunters found him. They uh, got him to the emergency room. And uh, then he woke up in the emergency room and he didn't know what had happened to him. But uh, 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 Dr. Ebersold here could see that it was going to be a brain issue because there was brain coming out of uh, the back of his head. And so he had to decide uh, how to deal with that kind of an injury and he had to do it on the spot. And of course, he had a lot of training. And uh, what he uh, ended up doing was uh, he knew that, you know, as soon as he removed that, the blood was going to start gushing out. And so he had to be ready uh, to deal with the holes uh, that were in there. And uh, he was going to have to find a way to sew up that vein. And also he knew that, uh, I, th- I think from what I could understand from the story, he was going to have to uh, cut the vein off, basically. And some people can tolerate that better than others. Uh, but uh, he was going to have to do it, you know, to stop the bleeding. And... Uh, so he did those things, and along the way, uh, one thing that he did was he took uh, a little bit of muscle tissue from some of the skin that he had to uh, cut away and separate uh, for uh, you know temporarily, so that he could do the surgery. And he uh, pulled some little pieces of muscle uh, from that skin, and he used the muscle uh, to uh, repair the vein and to tie it off. And the reason why he did that, I think, was because it was, you know, it was going to, uh, um, it would work better than, you know, something like any other materials that they had that would be made out of plastic or rubber or things. And I think it was because uh, those can make the vein tear, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. You know, if you try to tie something off uh, with a piece of artificial material, um, that uh, the ligature there would start to um, wear away at the tissue and then, you know, the vein would uh, get holes in it again. But with the muscle tissue, he didn't have to worry about that. And so he was able to take that muscle tissue and make the repairs, tie the vein off. And uh, uh, the uh, patient lived, which was uh, fantastic, of course. But um, uh, the idea here, because it goes on and it talks about his reflection, and if I remember right, they may have been introducing reflection in Make It Stick when they used the story. I can't quite remember, but but he does go on uh, as he tells the story, and uh, he uh, Mike Eversold talks about how he was reflecting on what he was doing and how you know over his career there was always just this idea in the back of his mind that he was reflecting on uh, things, and uh, the idea of using muscle uh, came from his own reflection eventually he said you know that's not something that they teach you in medical school he learned how to do it on the job and it, uh, his vast knowledge of uh, medicine and anatomy especially there um, related to the brain uh, he was able to uh, devise that as a way to solve problems when it came to uh, uh, working with 
veins and arteries, you know, use the muscle tissue. So that was something that he did based on a lot of reflection and a lot of experience. And uh, also, of course, a lot of factual knowledge. Um, he, of course, would have to know how the muscle would behave and all of those things too. But uh, really a fascinating story. And so what uh, this tells us is that he, there was this, he was able to do some problem solving there. And it was just based on all of the uh, knowledge of anatomy and then all of the knowledge of, of uh, you know, everything else he needed uh, to make that work. I apologize, the computer's just a little bit slow here. But um, the same kind of thing can happen in writing. You know, when you think about um, uh, students having a uh, body of knowledge, I skipped a slide there, if they have a body of knowledge like this, what they can do then as they are using it in whatever their own practice is, like if they are a grant writer or if they uh, have to write some sort of report for engineering or whatever it is that they have to do, uh, what this does is it, it's the, the starting place for enabling problem solving on their part. And so you have to kind of understand what writing is and how it works uh, before you can then problem solve with it, just like, or, you know, solve writing problems or, or approach writing problems, just like Mike Ebersold, of course, had to have the knowledge of medicine and the knowledge of neurosurgery and, of course, the practice that he had uh, kind of built on that, and he was able to solve some uh, uh, a serious medical problem right there on the spot. And the same kind of thing can happen with our students. Let's see where I am here so I can grab my last slide. Um, Once again, I apologize. It's going to be here somewhere. Sometime I've been thinking about making an episode to show you the technology I'm using, which uh, it is a pretty low-budget production, but uh, where did it go here? I'll have to see. Is it going to come back? At least I can't see it. Let me go out and try to come back in. Maybe one more time. There we go. Okay. Oh, did I have a little crash? Maybe I did. Okay. Well. I'm still going. Okay. We're doing good. All right. I apologize for that. But, um,. Anyway, what should we do as we face new developments in AI, I guess, as a way to wrap this up? So one thing is that, you know, fighting AI won't help students. Uh, we need to help them focus on what we want them to learn, and we want them to learn about writing. So we've got to focus on that knowledge about writing. That's the first thing. Um, and they do have to practice it. So I'm not saying that they shouldn't write in a writing course, but um, 
we need to adjust our pedagogy so that we're focusing on what we want students to learn. Um, if we're relying on one-time performances, such as papers that are worth a lot of credit, um, if uh, you know, we don't want to do that. Um, that's, we got to stop that. Another is that we do want to rely instead on substantive factual knowledge. You know, knowledge about writing. Just here's basically here's what writing is and how it works. And so the term genre is very central to that. And there are lots of others that are closely related. Um, start relying on artifacts that help us understand what students actually know. So things like metacognitive reflections, quizzes on course content, uh, things of that nature, which you know don't happen a lot, I think, in writing courses, uh, at least in my career. Um, uh, they were seen as, uh, as far as I could tell, the impression I've had is that you know quizzes just really aren't what we should be doing, but uh, they can also be very helpful. Um, and uh, studies show that uh, quizzes are important for uh, learning. Just having that factual knowledge base is really helpful. Uh, we should start relying on, our, on artifacts that help us understand what students actually know. Wait, okay, I'm sorry, I just did that one. And then the last one, emphasize practice and help students gain experience. Um, another uh, one, what have I got here? How Mike Ebersold versus my son and his uh, Affen Pincher license plate. So, okay, one last story. My son um, has been, he's, he's kind of a doer around the house, and he uh, loves to uh, try to solve little problems and put things together. You know, if something's broken, he wants to fix it, or he gets kind of creative and he wants to do something new. And uh, my uh, uh, wife got him an Affen Pincher license plate for his bike for Christmas, just a little mini license plate. But he likes to have license plates, and we have a dog. It's an Affen Pincher, and she is a, uh, a show dog. We take her to dog shows, and uh, that's uh, you know uh, a sport that my son participates in. And so we love this little dog, and he has a license plate that says Affen Pincher on it. And so um, what he wanted to do, of course, was put that on his bike, and he started with... Um, he thumbtacked it into the seat on the back of his bike, which of course wasn't good for the seat. And so, uh, uh, uh we pointed that out to him and then he, um, I can't remember what he did. He has used, um, pipe cleaners, uh, to fasten it on, I think. And his latest one is that, uh, he's using, uh, and this I think is the best one he's using zip ties. And so that, uh, really kind of helped fix the problem. It's on the back of his bike rack now. It's got a couple of zip ties on there, and it's on uh, nice and solid and uh, works really well. But, you know, he's just kind of gone through some trial and error. He's done some practice, and he's getting, you know, good at And he's been doing things like that for for a long time. He's 10 years old now. But uh, he's getting good at, you know, uh, finding the right materials and and solving little uh, problems like that when it comes to fixing things. So... Um, anyway, but gaining that experience is really important and uh, emphasizing practice in the classroom, writing practice in the classroom with the concepts that we teach our students is really helpful. And so that's those are some things that we can do as teachers to focus our pedagogy, to focus our thinking on what we want students to learn. We want students to focus on it, but we want to focus on it too. So uh, that's kind of the idea behind this episode. So thank you so much for uh, listening and watching. And uh, please like and subscribe. I hope you're having a great summer and I'll try to produce some more podcast episodes soon. Thank you so much.